Hi everybody, thank you very much for joining us on this latest ITAM Review podcast. As ever, we've got an excellent hour or so coming up for you. So joining me today, I have got a, a range of uh, fantastic people over fr from the uh, other side of the Atlantic. So first up, we've got um, Art Beeman. Hello, good to see you. Um, I am uh, Art Beeman. I have, uh, I'm with the Beeman and Muchmore. I'm one of the founding partners along with uh, Joel Muchmore. Uh, our firm is uh, dedicated solely to the representation of licensees involved in matters and disputes on ERP software with uh, the vendors. I've been uh, practicing law for uh, 40 years. And uh, as a trial lawyer, I've taken 30 plus cases to jury verdict. Joel? Uh, Joel Muchmore, good morning from uh, California. Uh, I am the other founding partner of Beeman and Muchmore. We've been doing this uh, as Art described it for about two years now, dedicating to practice solely to software licensing. I was in big law litigation for about 20 years prior to that, found a niche in the market that was best served with small, precise, micro specialty targeted counseling. And that's what we launched back in uh, June 1st, 2020 to do. Thanks for having us again, Rich. No problem. Thanks for joining us. And uh, yeah, June 2020 must have been an interesting time to launch anything. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's looking like it's going well. Well, it, it was it was a fascinating time to launch. Uh, part of the good thing was is that everybody was rethinking everything in June 2020. And so we brought to the table kind of a new way to practice law, untethered from the big firms, uh, a tailored specialized counseling. And um, uh, we think it's the wave of the future. Awesome. I like that. And talking of uh, rethinking and doing things differently, we are also joined by uh, License Fortress. So, so from License Fortress, first of all, we've got Dean Bolton. Hi, Dean. Hi, Rich, um, and hello, everyone. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, my name is Dean Bolton, Chief Architect and Co-Founder of License Fortress. Um, I've been working with Oracle for 22 years now, started as a, a DBA, um, but spent the past uh, 15 years, oh, can't believe how fast time goes, uh, 15 years focused on enterprise architecture, license, compl uh, license compliance, and audit defense. Uh, I'm a VMware V-expert, Oracle ACE, um, a SQL certified uh, DBA, uh, Oracle certified master, Rack certified, uh, Exadata certified. So a lot of time uh, hands-on with Oracle uh, and focused on the, the enterprise license compliance space. Awesome. So it's safe to say that you know a thing or two about uh, use, using Oracle kind of in, in the real world. Um, Maybe. Might have touched it once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then last, but by no means least, uh, we have got Michael Corey, also of License Fortress. So good morning to you. Good morning, Rich. Yeah, this is Mike Corey. I'm the other co-founder of License Fortress. I've been working with Oracle Technology at this point, 38 years, which puts me back to Oracle version three. I'm the original Oracle Press author and have, num and have published numerous books on Oracle and Microsoft and VMware technology. I'm a past president of the International Oracle Users Groups. I am an Oracle Ace today. I'm a VMware V expert today and a past Microsoft MVP. Suffice to say, I've made my living dealing with uh, Oracle Corporation and relational technologies for a very long time. Excellent. So you can see a, a wealth of experience. I mean, the, 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 the kind of spam that people are talking about, you must all have started when you were about four. So, um, <laughs> yeah, got some uh, some... Sort of geniuses of, uh, of the software world. Um, 
so so yeah so you know whenever we get together and talk we always find that there's plenty of stuff to to keep us busy um i know we we've got some topics that we we want to cover um i think first of all what we'll do is i'll hand it over to you mike and you can kind of set the scene and we'll um we'll go from there Oh, that's great. Thank you, Rich. So first of all, Rich, I want to thank you and ITM Review for hosting this podcast. I really want to thank my three co-hosts from being here, Dean, the co-founder of License Fortress, and Art Beeman and Joel Muchmore of uh, Beeman and Muchmore. In this podcast, we're going to discuss a recent survey. The survey was Managing the Software Audit, 2022 survey on enterprise software licensing and audit trends. This survey is literally fresh off the presses. It just came out a few days ago. And what I really like is that it was done by a research firm, Unistria Media, a division of information today. So it doesn't have that venture taint to it. And the other thing, uh, it will give us some really good insight into the effects of COVID and the economy on software audits. So we'll discuss the, the ramifications of the survey findings. We're also going to discuss soft audits, which are becoming more and more commonplace in the market, and some of the inherent landmines that can happen for those who are not prepared for them properly. And we're also going to discuss industry events like the Broadcom acquisition of VM, VMware and the impact that they will have on software audits. So with that, let me turn it back to you, Rich. Oh, thank you very much. So yes, as you can see, we've got quite the uh, the agenda lined up for you. Um, so yeah, so you, you mentioned the survey that you you know the piece of research that's just been completed. Um, they're always useful for you know us as industry people, but also for for end users and for customers because I think you know they serve as quite a good way to benchmark. Know, what you're doing, what you think is happening, etc. Um, so I, I guess you know I've taken a look through the, the report. I've got some thoughts and things, but it'd be interesting to hear you know from from you, Mike, and, and everyone else. You know what are your you know key takeaways from the from the survey that people should be aware of. So I, I guess I could start with that. One of the things that um, I wasn't surprised by was that software audits continue to be on the rise. And in fact, it seems like COVID, and in fact, the survey talks to this, is fueling even a greater um, rise of software audits. Uh, and the survey discusses the fact that as these companies were struggling for revenue coming out of COVID, that the, once again, software audits are seen as an easy way to generate revenue. And yeah, if I can go ahead, Dean, please. I was going to say, if I can just piggyback on that, it's it's always helpful to get the data from the industry that validates what you're seeing personally, right? It's the the quantitative to go with the qualitative. From License Fortress, we're we're busier than ever, so I know that there's plenty of audits happening out there. But to see the research that shows that customers are getting audited on average every two point what was it like two point three years? Oh, seventy uh, percent. Every three years, multiple audits. Yep. So to see that across the industry in there, um, it really kind of reinforces the notion that the audits are, are there, they're on the rise uh, in there, and that, that customers do need to be prepared for these. You can't just stick your head in the sand uh, and pretend that you're going to get lucky um, because that's just not the case nowadays. Um, uh, related to that also, the incongruity, which I saw in the survey, which was... Uh, um, not surprising, but still um, certainly somewhat dismaying in light of the acceleration of audits is the fact that I believe I have this right, I'm relying on my memory, but over half of those surveyed had sought no outside professional counseling in any way, shape or form while the audit was going on. I think I have that right. Um, that said, it's amazing when you consider the exposure and the risks associated with that, yet in the market with the licensees being subject to the audit, you don't have a commensurate uh, uh, vigilance on their part uh, in light of this phenomenon to make sure that they're getting the appropriate counseling to protect their assets and their business. And I think that's something that's, that's quite interesting. You know, audits have been around for a long time. They're always uh, 
big topic at our conferences, user groups, etc. Um, but they're always seen as ITAM's problem, something which you know ITAM has to deal with completely on its own. And you know, you might be a, a one-person ITAM team, and you, you know, you've got millions and millions of dollars on the on the table potentially, but very rarely do do people know where they can turn? You know, it's something that they have, uh, something they have to bear themselves. Um, and as we've seen already, you know, the the number of audits that people get, the frequency of them. Um, I think for people just to know that there are, uh, you know, support mechanisms, as it were, and that it's it's okay for them to, to reach out to people and, and get assistance. I think for a lot of people, probably just knowing that that's possible is a good start for them. I think that's, that's right. And it even goes, I, I believe, a little beyond that in terms of what is the standard practice within a market, within a, an industry, uh, when you get notice, by way of example, of an audit. If we were to move to another sector, like the world of... Uh, of patents. And if you received a notice letter as someone in-house, whether IT or in the law department, that someone was alleging that your business is infringing their patent, you would lose your job if you didn't get the appropriate counseling. And it's generally outside uh, to assess the risk and make sure that uh, uh, it's managed appropriately. You're not seeing that sort of practice yet in the space of software audits, but as this group has uh, commented on previously, many of these audits, especially with the reform on the patent side, you could compare it to uh, the exposure presented by software audits and, and argue that the latter actually today represents uh, on average a greater risk to business. So there's a little catch up being played on the part of the consumer, the licensee, in terms of what it should be doing when faced with an audit. And certainly this survey reinforced to me that there, that there is an imbalance. And with the rise of audits, you need to see more in the way of a discipline on the part of licensee targets to make sure that they get the appropriate counseling for protecting their assets. But, but let's quantify the danger, right? The survey did a nice job of that. You have a one in four chance of paying up to a million dollars, right? You had a one in 10 chance of paying over a million dollars. And if you were a large enterprise, over a thousand employees, you had a one in five chance, I'm sorry, a two in five chance of paying over a million dollars. And the other thing that is that these surveys were targeting mid-sized companies, 250 employees, you know, roughly 83% chance of being audited. And then, gee, your odds, if you were the enterprise, dropped down to 70-something percent chance of being audited. So I go right back to your point, which is well done. When the chance of writing a million-dollar check unexpectedly, you should seek professional help of a licensed fortress. You should seek the help of a Beeman and much more. Otherwise, you're, you're playing roulette and you have a losing number. Yeah, and I, I think um, even before you get to the, the third party assistance, which obviously, you know, you guys have got huge amounts of experience in this area, but I think we see a surprising lack of people even going to speak to their in-house legal teams. You know, it, it may well only be at the very, very end, you know, when, when you've already, you're on the hook, it's, it's older and dusted, then maybe legal get involved because they need to sign a contract or, or something. Um, I think, you know, there should be a... I guess a phased approach, you know, first thing you speak to your in-house in people and then once you've spoken together, then you, you know, you reach out to a, a third party with, with even more specialist skills. Um, and I, I'm not sure why, I don't know if it's reluctance, if it's, you know, maybe people feel their, their in-house counsellor are too busy or they're, they're doing something more important, but as we've already said, you know, there perhaps aren't many things more important than uh, than reducing your exposure on a, a software audit. 
I think it's as simple as most people do not inherently view these as an adversarial process. I think they view it as the way it's presented to them is no problem. We're just going to shore up a few licenses, check a few things out, make sure everything looks good. And then before they know it, it either spirals into the adversarial process that we know that it can, or they just divulge everything and then let it all go through. One of the things in the survey I was interested in was the relatively low number of people who considered it adversarial. And uh, part of me says, uh, well, I think that might be because a lot of people just gave it all up. They asked for more information than they deserved. They gave it. They asked for more licenses that weren't necessary. They bought them. And uh, by the time it got to legal to review the contracts, legal didn't really understand how certain rights could have been compromised going forward. And if there's one thing that I always want to stress with everybody is that there is always the potential, if not the probability of it turning uh, 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 adversarial, especially if you're protecting your rights properly. And, and just to add on to that, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen the scope of the audit uh, increase and, and just creep in. I mean, the number of times we've been working with customers where they're getting audited by Oracle or Microsoft or one of the other vendors, and the vendor already has information from lunch and learns, from outside conversations where they were just telling them about a new feature, but gathering this information. It's, it's really staggering in there. And so I think that's absolutely right that the way these happen, they start sometimes from the bottom up and it doesn't get the, the legal involved until later on. It doesn't get you know, the C-suite involved in later on. And sometimes that's too late and it's just the, the, the nature of it because people aren't understanding that these are adversarial, not just from the beginning of the audit in some cases, but from way before that and through the whole relationship, which is frankly, very unfortunate, right? Because you you, you do need a resource uh, to learn about the new products and new features in there. And who better uh, than the vendor to tell you about all those things. But uh, one of the things we counsel everybody is just be very careful and don't disclose more than you need to, because it has a way of coming back uh, down the road. And, and let me take it a step further, because it's a different twist in that. And it, you would think going to the vendor would be the right place to learn how to properly license the software. But as we all know, a lot of these vendors have policies that are not contractual in nature that are designed to artificially raise the cost of your purchases. And so if you're just assuming the vendor policy is contractual and you're listening to them, you're paying way too much for your software. I think one of the explanations could very well be in terms of why the a licensee doesn't seek internal to start internal counseling, maybe from a law department or the appropriate uh, professional within. And then of course, when necessary, seeking the appropriate external counseling from professionals. Uh, I think it could be as simple as we have a contract. There's a contract in place and they don't feel the, or if someone's asking them to enter into a contract or a new contract, that's one thing. And they're not even having someone coming or confronting them and saying, you're in breach, at least not right away. So they figure contract in place, it was executed a couple years ago or whatever, and we're just in the business now, says the IT professional, of honoring a contract, not realizing that so many different terms and conditions of that contract may very well be in play because of virtualization, uh, because of uh, applications that they're uh, executing, whatever they may be, there's a benign sense of comfort that they're thinking, well, this is an existing agreement. Why do we need professionals? That they, They've already had their input when the contract was uh, negotiated and entered into, and they don't see the organic and dynamic nature of that contract and how terms can be in play from the moment an audit is triggered. Well, what about the vendors slipping in new terms, right? I mean, or trying to change the contract that people forget that when they make these purchases, it's commonplace for the vendors to try to move the contracts forward and change the terms. And for Oracle customers, a lot of them have terms that are really to their advantage that they don't ever want to lose or give up, which is why it's so important to have legal involved. It's so important that people like License Fortress involved. So you don't give up these rights that you already have. Exactly. That's, a, that's a really good point. And I remember reading last year or the year before, and it, it wasn't Oracle, but it was one of the, the other usual suspects. It was 
Microfocus or Quest. I think it was Quest. And, you know, there was an organization they'd bought, say, 30,000 licenses under an agreement in 2015, which had certain terms. And then they bought, you know, a handful of licenses, you know, 30 licenses on a, an agreement from 2019. And that had more restrictive terms. And the way the vendor looked at it was, right, all your licenses now have this more restrictive term because our new agreement supersedes and overwrites all previous agreements. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing, if you're an IT professional, you, you're not going to think to yourself, or they might, they might try and do that to us. Um, so I think that, that goes to, to that point around them trying to slip in new terms and make changes. Um, would you say, should you have legal review you know, every time you buy something, should you have someone review the, the terms and conditions of, of what you're purchasing? You just gotta. I mean, what you describe as one of the most uh, pernicious uses of click-through licensing that Quest and Microfocus were doing, which was a literal substitution of the entire master agreement with a new one. So it did. It changed everything that they had been licensing going way back decades and the terms for every single license. And admittedly, that's more of those new folks, the tier two licensors are doing that. Uh, Oracle and micro, uh, 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 Microsoft and the others are a little bit less overt about it. I have not seen an instance where an entire master agreement was substituted for every license they owned, but they are definitely pressing for a new master agreement and getting more and more aggressive that you have to sign the OMA, regardless of whether or not you've been purchasing pursuant to an Olsa since 2001. Every ordering document has new terms, whether it's subsidiary use, whether it's territory use, whether or not it's how you can back up the incorporation of license definitions and rules. Every one of those changes, and if you don't have somebody paying attention to that, that can either shore it up, keep it consistent, or at minimum, give a heads up and say, look, they may insist that you sign this, but if you sign this, here is what's going to happen, and you have to be careful with that going forward. And then uh, even the, the most innocuous Java uh, uh, purchases and installations, they're just throwing up a new sign-in screen all the time, new rules. I, we have clients that have, as far as I can tell, 15 different Java uh, uh, agreements controlling how they are, have it splayed throughout their organization. It's just too much. Somebody needs to keep track of this. It can become almost a rubber stamp. It doesn't have to be complicated. But yeah, somebody who knows something needs to look at every one of them. And, and I just want to uh, second that. It's one, the dollar figures involved are just too great. And even if it is something as simple as taking an hour to compare this ordering document or this support renewal against last year's and flagging the terms and asking a question, because of, you know, you can have millions, tens of millions, we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars at stake because of these terms. That's worth an hour of everybody's time maybe there's a couple billionaires out there where it's actually not, but you know, they can do their own thing. Everybody else, you should, you should check on that. And it's because we're seeing all of these things, the, the intentional ones, like Joel said, from some of these tier two vendors, but just natural and normal changes and focus changes too. We've seen a number of, of ordering documents where the customer will just by default uh, get terms that limit the territory, right? You're a US based company. So the restrictions limited to that territory. Well, then natural mergers and acquisitions, divestitures happen. You've got an issue around that. And we've had a number of customers where um, when they entered in the agreement, cloud was an afterthought. It wasn't even on their horizon. Well, five years later, now cloud first is the strategy they have. Those old licenses, do they apply? Can they use those? Are they counted in there? And it's just all of these little things that come together for both intentional and natural um, changes that occur in there that just need to be considered in addition to just the dollar figure of what you're buying in there. So, so I think it would be, I think all of us would say, yep, you got to do it. Most of the time it's going to be very easy, but you need to have that review, that formal process internally and using external experts if, if necessary to make sure that you're avoiding all of these pitfalls. Just to provide, just to provide context here, in terms of the parties with the law, at least uh, uh, US law, 
Uh, we talk about the licensees sometimes and we use the word consumer. Um, under the, uh, under the, uh, the applicable law, UCC or otherwise in the United States, and regardless of which state of the union you're talking about, uh, most of these licensees, if not all of them, would be viewed as sophisticated commercial parties. In other words, they would be viewed under law as parallel to um, a vendor like Oracle or Microsoft. You're in the business. We're assuming that you understand as a business the terms and conditions of contracts you sign, including amendments to the contract, et cetera. You're not the consumer of, uh, by way of example, a drug or an automobile or, or, or something where the law perhaps can lay out certain conditions and protections for you as a classic consumer in the market of a consumer product. The law typically in these transactions involving ERP contracts will view the licensee customer as a sophisticated commercial entity and they will get the benefit of no presumptions uh, in their favor as the innocent or naive consumer gets with certain other products, classic consumer products in the market. That's a very interesting point, actually, because I think, you know, people, IT asset managers, uh, licensed professionals, you know, they will, can, they won't see it like that. You know, they will absolutely think of themselves as the, um, you know, the, the, the typical consumer. You've bought the thing because you need it, but you don't really understand it. You know, how how could you? Um, so it's it's probably just setting that expectation for people listening that in you know if, if it gets that far you're considered a, an equal of, of Oracle or Microsoft when it comes to understanding the, the contracts and licensing terms that may well be you know the impetus needed internally to to, to get the you know whether it's extra manpower extra budget for an external review or something, um, you know, if you say to your leadership, look, you know, if this goes to court, we're, we're considered equal to Oracle. So we need to do something to give ourselves a, a fighting chance. Um, that's, that's very interesting to, to learn that. Art. Thank you. Um, so I'm just, with the um, with, with the whole, you know, we kind of touched on it a little bit, Dean, you know, the, the sort of soft audit, you know, things then they don't really look like an audit per se anymore mm -hmm. um and it sounds like they're becoming more and more common uh you know from from oracle and from some of the other vendors mm -hmm. and I, I guess something you know how do you defend against that you know in, in itam you know audit defense is a, a really big thing and you have your your checklist <coughs> and, you know when you get the letter you do x when the vendor turns up with the briefcase, you do why. If that's not happening anymore, what what's a what's a customer supposed to do to to try and protect themselves? Yeah, I mean it's it's a great question, Rich, and and it is a very dynamic environment, right? The vendors are changing um, how they do these, and and so it makes it difficult for the customers to figure out how to how to handle each of these different scenarios. The biggest one that we see right now is definitely Oracle around Java. I mean, they acquired Java with Sun back in 2010. Um, they made an announcement around the change to Java licensing um, for, for Oracle's uh, IP in 2000. I mean, we believe it was 2017 to take effect in 2019. And customers are still trying to figure it out on, on how to deal with it. Um, and, and Oracle is making it difficult because they're saying that they have to involve um, LMS, their, their audit division, to sell customers Oracle licenses. So it makes it a very, very difficult landscape to navigate. What we've advised customers to do is to treat it like a formal audit. It's an adversarial um, engagement with them in there. And you have to be prepared to uh, to get all of your ducks in a row, understand exactly what your requirements are, disclose as little as possible, and potentially press points um, quite uh, quite thoroughly um, with them. Now, these these soft audits we've seen from Oracle for oh, uh, 
I think probably since April of 2019 at this point, maybe shortly after that. Um, but just to the point of how, how dynamic it is, um, Oracle started officially auditing for Java uh, as of earlier this year um, in there. Right now, it's still in a um, declarative format where the customer um, basically has to provide details. There's not a, uh, a lot of review, technical review of that currently. Um, we saw this before with, with Oracle um, and about uh, a year and a half, two years after they start the formal audits to get into the technical details. And so we think that's, that's tracking along too, that um, if you do get audited by Oracle for Java um, in uh, so January, I would say by July of next year, um, January of 2024 at the latest, uh, there will be um, the, the formal process with the technical review component of that. So it, it, it's dynamic, it's shifting, we're trying to keep on top of it. Um, it's a little bit easier for us because we're advising dozens of customers all at the same time to get that view of it. Um, but customers really do have to just treat it like a, uh, a quote unquote hard audit, um, even though it, it, uh, it might not be quite that yet. Right. I was just going to add one more thing. When you are formally audited by the vendors, there's a certain playbook that you follow, right? Single point of contact to the vendor. Customers say, oh, it's just a soft audit. We're just having a conversation and they don't protect themselves. And once something's said to the vendor, it's very difficult to undo it. It's very difficult to move the goalposts from the right to the left. So just, you know, spilling, this is how many licenses we have. Then when you see the number of what it costs you, well, maybe you might've redeployed the licenses to bring that cost down. Well, it's very hard to change the vendor's mindset when they see dollar signs and they've got a quota to hit and they think they're gonna sell 2000 licenses, not 500 licenses. Though both could be set up in your environment legally and meet your company needs. So just remember these soft audits go back to the vendors are finding it an easy way to get the information they need because you're not protecting yourself the way you would during a formal audit. Well, and in the fact, the contracts, different. oh, sorry, Mike, I didn't mean to jump. No, on. no, go ahead. I was just going to say the contracts themselves have limitations that help the uh, licensee uh, during, in the case of an audit. I mean, Oracle famously has a not unreasonably interfere with your business practices, and you can kind of bandy and use that and, and circum be circumscribed in what you give them and be very careful. It is a built-in protection. When you're in soft audits, there's no protection whatsoever. Uh, Art has coined the term that I like on this, free shots on goal. They just ask for information, and if you get it, they say, great, maybe there's more. And you can't really stop at any point. There's no reason to stop giving the information as they ask for it. But then I stress to everybody, there is no self-reporting requirement in an Oracle or really any other agreement that I've seen. There's nothing that says if they come and ask for what you're doing, you got to tell them or you have to uh, on demand provide information. There, there's no requirement to do that. You police yourself until they audit you. And, uh, and most people don't realize that. We've actually seen in these soft audit situations, the uh, salesperson say, you have to give us this information. And then I say to the client, you do not need to give them that information. You need to be compliant. You need to be careful. You need to pay for your licenses. And if you're in an audit, you need to give them information. But in a soft audit, and this is a, 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 where they're sitting there trying to gather up as information as they want to, you don't got to tell them anything. You have no contractual or reasonable obligation to spill information when they start asking for it. And Joel, didn't you share with us recently a company that was going to a soft audit that ended up in court based on some things that were said? Uh, well, it, it, that, that is our, our assumption as to one of those two litigations that Oracle filed back in the summer of 2021. There was NEC Corporation and Envisage. Uh, NEC was in the uh, context of an audit and Envisage was not. And so our reasonable speculation was that they had been uh, just asking a bunch of questions and then had kind of just went radio silent and then Oracle dove in on the litigation route. We have not seen that I'm aware of, and I keep a pretty close eye, any litigation against licensees by Oracle since then. And we don't know whether or not that was a spike that was intended to send a message to the market, whether or not there were just two good back-to-back -back cases for them to do, or really what the status is. We're constantly thinking about Oracle's litigation playbook, and uh, there just aren't that many tea leaves to read from other than they don't do it a lot. Then when they do it, it seems to be sending a message. 
And when they do it, it seems to be because somebody went silent. When I say, by the way, you don't need to give them information, that doesn't mean stop responding to emails. You got to keep them engaged until they naturally go away. But uh, no radio silence. Don't stop communicating because that's punching your ticket to a termination or a litigation. But at the same time, don't ways, have, I was go just going to say, at, at the same time, don't have diarrhea of the mouth. Don't give them too much information, right? Go back to what Dean said, which is figure out, get your ducks in a row. And then communicate with them in a very precise way so that they get what they need and you pay what you're, you're obligated to pay and no more. And, and, and I think to, to some degree, and the terms emerge as they emerge in describing phenomenon, but if, if ever there was a misnomer, uh, it would be using the word soft in front of what's going on here. Because <laughs> it is highly, highly perilous and fraught with, with, with uh, risks for uh, your business. If you are gratuitously providing information pursuant to what you believe are innocuous questions all under the umbrella of a soft audit. And in many ways in our practice at uh, Beeman and much more in our partnership with Licensed Fortress, we've seen more legal risk created by clients responding to so-called soft audits than clients engaged in formal audits. Because when you're involved in the formal audit, it's somewhat akin to litigation. And if you put on your armor, you know that, hey, game on. The soft audit is almost like finding out, hey, you've been uh, stepping to the plate and just swinging away and you didn't realize that they're actually recording. Uh, and they're recording the strikes and the outs and the hits and everything. You thought, I didn't know we were playing this game. Well, you are. Uh, and there's really nothing soft about the potential consequences. So the, the watchword here is vigilance. You just have to be careful. That's a very good point about the, the term. Maybe we should try and rename it because, you know, a soft order, it does sound less worrying, less dangerous. Maybe uh, as a, a kind of, you know, a call to action for the listeners, if anyone wants to email us with, suggestions for a new term i actually i actually have a suggestion and this is borrowed from my uh uh, uh patent litigation days um we called the stealth patents which were all of a sudden asserted because they were uh, uh the the patent holder was laying in the weeds waiting for certain dates to come um we called them submarine patents and then out of nowhere, boom, you would be sued on a patent where you had no idea for decades uh, that, that you were infringing. We could call it the, you know, these submarine audits. In other words, they're under the water, but that's the consequence. You need, they can still fire torpedoes. Just a proposal. I'm not saying it's going to go anywhere. But Although you, know, you said I, stealth, which I thought yeah. was, would also be a good idea. Stealth yeah. audits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Any, anyway, we have to run to the PTO and get a copyright to registration <laughs> from whatever. Can, okay, uh, we, we might as well combine the two and, and call them stealth submarine. Or, <laughs> right. Um, but so I guess so. I've got a couple of points that, that I want to try and sort of loop together. So we've talked about you know the fact that these. Uh, submarine audits are always happening. So when we were talking earlier about uh, the need to review contracts, review terms, etc., what we often see in reality at the moment is people review things just just before they get an audit, when they, when they think it's about to happen, or just before they're about to do a renewal. And you know, and really, in both cases, it's too late because if you uncover anything, you haven't got enough time to to really look into it because you've got your renewal looming. Is it something you would suggest? You know that you have a every, once a quarter, once a half, you you know you you pull out and you say, right, every quarter we're going to review our our contracts versus. You know, maybe what's out there in the market to, to understand what's changing. You know, and, and Q1 we do Oracle, Q2 we do IBM, Q3. It, it is having some kind of process like that. You know, is that going too far, or is that are we, are we looking at maybe a kind of best practice there? 
No, Rich, I think that's a, a great way of doing it. I think that the driver for it should be the frequency of the contracts or the renewals, right? So there's no point to renew or review Microsoft four times a year if the renewal is annual. Same thing in there with Oracle, but staggering them across your calendar to line up with that, I think is a, is a great way of a great first step. Um, I think we would all say the, the best time to start reviewing this and to check on everything was yesterday. The second best time is today. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's not too late. Um, and I think it also just plays into one of the other points is that these support renewals um, are an easy way for customers or for vendors um, to drive the revenue. I'm not sure if you, you've seen or if, uh, people listening have, have, are aware of this, but Oracle has recently made a change so that they can now increase their annual um, support uplifts from 4% to 8%. Um, and while that doesn't sound like a huge amount in there, uh, basically that means that before at 4%, it took 18 years for your costs to double. At 8%, now it's 9 so in that same time, 18 years, you go up another factor of two in there. And those prices can start to eat away very quickly. So I think those are exactly the things that need to be reviewed uh, at least every year for these big vendors, where it's looking at what's your spend, how to get that aligned, um, what are the contracts themselves, do that full review or find a, 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 a firm that can help you with it in there to take a look at it and be aware of it because you can end up paying uh, a lot more than what you expected. Even if you had great discounts at the onset, we've seen customers who have you know, been able to negotiate 70, 80% discounts 10 years ago. Well, that was great then, but those annual increases have, have caught up with them. And now in a lot of cases, they're paying more than list price uh, for some of these renewals. And so if you're not reviewing those type of things uh, on a regular basis, um, you're leaving probably a lot of money on the table and paying more than you need to. Right. Dave, are you actually seeing 8% increases? I know that they set, made that a possibility, but are they actually doing that on their support renewals? We have not seen any customer um, get their renewal yet since that contractual change was made. So no, we haven't, but we've just seen that change with Oracle's new fiscal, which was just in, in June of this year. So I anticipate with some renewals coming up that, that it's going to come through. Um, I don't think they did it just for uh, <laughs> giggles, basically. Uh, but no, think, not yet um, because of the, the recency. It, sorry. Do you think they could be doing it as a negotiation tactic? So, you know, even okay. if, you know, they even if they never actually put something through at 8%, now there's always the, oh, well, if you buy... Oracle Cloud from us, or if you do this, we'll, you know, we could double your support, but we won't do. We'll, we'll keep it at four. Do you think they might, it, might be using it like that as well? It, it could be, but Oracle is, them specifically are, are very reluctant to negotiate on support. Right. right. And, and so before it was, they had a 4% cap on it um, for the, a couple of years. Um, in general, they only increased it 3% in there so that it gave them the right to go there um, and now with eight percent they have the right to go there but we've seen oracle be be fairly um restrictive on that it is difficult to negotiate those renewals uh in terms of the uplift that they decide to drop on there but right. to me this is part of the COVID effect right all these companies saw impacts to their revenue directly as a result of covid and now they're looking for ways to increase revenue, right? Acquisitions only get them so far. Mm -hmm. And so this is an easy one, software audits. The more audits I do, the more money I generate, right? Gee, I can go back to my base and maybe if I go from 4% to 8%, well, we're in inflationary times. What a surprise. Yeah. So, but what I found most concerning though, beyond all that was in the survey, it said 67% report they do not scan software resources configuration as part of this software asset management policy. They're not keeping their house in order. With Oracle, there's no license keys. In the decade that we've been looking under the covers on helping people, we've yet to find somebody 100% compliant. Think about that. So you are making yourself an easy target if you don't control your own house. 
So part of controlling your own house is, right, knowing what you're deploying, where you're deploying it, how you're deploying it, what options you're using. Another part is making sure that as you buy software from the vendors, you don't let changes happen to the contracts that could hurt you, right? So, but to me, that 67% are not doing monitoring their own case. Well, no wonder why the vendors are doing this and they're all doing it, right? Number one's Microsoft, number two's Oracle, number three's IBM. And oh, by the way, Oracle's claim to fame here is that you'll pay more to Oracle than any of the other vendors. Not by my, IBM's right behind them. And then of course, Microsoft. So they have a right to be paid for their software, but you don't have to overpay them. Yeah. And that's, I think that that's the takeaway that, you know, with all these conversations about audits, no, none of us are saying, you know, underpay or, you know, hide what you're using, et cetera. But it's, yeah, you, you know, you, you don't go, don't go the other way. Um, I did see in the survey something that, that tickled me slightly that Oracle was a, apparently the second most friendly um company to be audited by which doesn't quite match up with um all, all the stories that, that we hear at our conferences um but it, it did remind me that when we at itam review did an, an audit survey towards the end of 2020 um ibm managed to come in the top three for the the most helpful vendor to be audited by and the least helpful vendors to be audited by. So there's some kind of Schrodinger's auditor whereby you know, good and bad simultaneously. And, and I guess you know, that, that serves to illustrate somewhat and the fact that Oracle uh, were rated to be friendly, that you know, no audit is the same, you know, they're very, very much like you know, very expensive snowflakes and, and that when as an end user as a customer even if you're being audited frequently you know, you're only going to see you know one or two audits a, a year or every couple of years so whenever whatever information you have will be you know two or three years out of date you know it might be pre-covid information that you have as to what an audit looks like um whereas you know, third parties such as yourselves, you know, are seeing multiple audits in a much shorter time. So does that, do you think, does that give you the ability to see changes and trends faster than, you know, a, a traditional customer would? So a, a couple of things I just want to jump in. A, a couple of things. First of all, it's the luck of the draw who you get for an auditor. Ironically, one of the things that's really important is that when you finish an audit, you have to make sure that the close doesn't allow them to reopen something that's already been closed. We've had a number of audits come along where they were old customers, they had certain agreements on how they're going to report the numbers, and then a new auditor comes along and they want to ignore three previous audits and go down a whole new path. So I would argue that it's the luck of the drawer, the auditor, and making sure that you've lined up your ducks and that when you close out an audit, you don't leave the window open for them to reopen something that was previously decided. Sorry. And then Dean. And, and I was just going to echo on that, that, that it is kind of each one is a little bit different, but some of it, I think, Rich, to your point is that because we see so many of these, we do have a different view of it, but <clears throat> If the vendor audits you and says you owe $5 million and then negotiates down to 1 million and you can afford that, no heads roll at your company um, and there's not long-term impacts of that, you might not think that's such a bad deal. Now, if we go in and take a look at it and it turns out you only owe 100,000, you paid a million for it, I think that's a terrible deal. So it's all about the perspective in there and there and each case might be friendly. They, they might've taken your million dollars with a smile on their face. Uh, and you think it was a great result because you saved four million in there, but it 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 it's uh it it is kind of custom in there, and it just depends. But I I think it does become uh, just an issue where uh, seeing more gives you a better view of the the industry side. And this survey I think is a perfect example of it. 
Well, well Dean, let, and, let, let, let's 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 focus also um, um, uh, on the terms being used here, and I don't want to make this a semantic exercise, but someone being friendly is not necessarily someone being fair. Okay, uh, I, I mean, I spoke at the outset about my uh, litigation experience and. And the, and the courtroom uh, uh, battles. Let me tell you, the the lawyer on the other side I feared most was that friendly person who just always had a smile. And that sensation I had in my side was the dagger he was putting in me. Um, and so the 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 point the point being, uh, friendly is its own thing. That means that perhaps that they were professional. But I would never assume that any vendor is making an effort to be fair or equitable or even handed. To Mike's earlier point, it's about revenue. They want to maximize the dollars. Well, and just being fairly quippy, if you want to see a friendly vendor switch to an unfriendly one, tell them that you're not going to pay too much and you're just going to pay what you owe. And then you <laughs> might see that one change really quickly. No doubt. You know, it's funny during this, we talked about an adversarial relationship and it's not that we try to approach it in a negative way, but I think go right back to what everybody said. You may think they're giving you a good deal. We had one customer where the Oracle threw out a number of 50, 60 million, wanted to do a quick close at 8 million. We look under the covers, they owe $160,000, right? Wow. I mean, had we not, and by the way, had we not been brought in because the because the this particular vendor got negative on them, and then they realized maybe this eight million dollar deal wasn't such a good deal. And my God, did they get a surprise when we said we well, owe one hundred and sixty thousand dollars? That's what the contract says, and it's why we take the approach. It's not about we want to sell you a long term service. We have access to lawyers, Beeman, and and. We want to be with you at every step of the way. So as you're deploying software, we can help you avoid all these pitfalls. Because remember, the vendors make great, Oracle makes great technology. Microsoft makes great technology. Nobody disputes it. IBM makes great technology, depending on which camp you're in, right? And they want long-term business from you. But the second tier vendors, I'm not so sure I agree. They care whether they have long-term visit business. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, on that point with the second day vendors, you know, the open text acquisition and micro focus, I think it's probably fair to say that that is going to result in, uh, you know, more audits and, you know, they're, they're both pretty aggressive. So it, mm -hmm. it's, you know, I, I assume an aggressive auditor plus an aggressive auditor can only equal an even more aggressive auditor. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, that we try and help our audience with, but I, I think people should, should do it. You know, we, we help people keep track of who's acquiring who, uh, you know, who's just had venture capitalist money injected yeah. into them and things like that, which, which, you know, they're not what people would consider traditional IT asset management, but I think. For, for all these things that we're talking about, you know, understanding as, as much as you can who is on the other end of the phone, who is asking these questions, or you know, if they've never asked these questions before, why have they started now? If you can see, oh, you know, they've just been acquired by, uh, you know, a particularly audit-focused company or venture capitalist, that that might be the thing that helps you uh, you know, as as we mentioned earlier, you know, put your armor on at, at the right time to to, to answer those questions. Um, so I, I think, you know, we we see some people saying that you know audits are going away. Cloud means that you don't need to worry about audits, um, and you know, IT asset managers should be focused on something more positive than audits. Um, but I, I think as we've seen in, in this conversation, you know, the, as technology changes, as business changes, audits are just changing along with them. And, you know, cloud brings its own concerns, which, um, you know, is probably really a, a separate conversation in itself almost. But I think, you know, no matter how uh, you know, how technology is, is transforming, I think for asset managers, keeping 
up to date with um, with vendors shenanigans and audits and, and things is always going to be you know a significant part of their time I would say. You know it's funny the survey does a nice job of talking about the fact that moving to the cloud does not alleviate these issues, right? In fact, using quoting the survey, close to eight in 10 enterprises reported software compliance issues have either increased or remained the same after moving to the cloud. Um, so while I think the cloud is a long-term strategy for companies, it's not gonna make these problems go away. And by the way, Oracle's been talking about DBAs going away for Larry Elson announced we wouldn't need DBAs, what, 30 years ago at this point, 20 years ago? <laughs> And DBAs are still here and strong. So I can tell you, given that it raises revenue, software audits are not going away. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, that that's the, the main thing. You know, that's why acquisitions usually spark audits because, you know, you've just spent six billion or whatever it might be. How do you get as much of it back as fast as you can? You, you know, you, you go and mop up all the alleged you know underpayments um so i'm i'm conscious we've been chatting for nigh on an hour um uh, and I, I feel like we're only just getting started to be honest um but um we will need to uh, to, to draw this to a close so i guess what i always like to try and finish on a uh you know a, a takeaway or a, a a more uplifting note so I'm going to ask, put each of you on the spot a little bit and just ask you, you know, what, what's the kind of one thing you know, that, that people listening should, should take away or the one thing that they should do when they, uh, when they close the, the media player, um, you know, to, 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 you know, take action on some of the things that we've spoken about today. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go in the order that you are on my screen. Um, it's alphabetical, so that gives you a little bit of an idea of where I'm going first, uh, hopefully. Um, so, um, Art, what is your kind of key takeaway for the listeners today? Well, uh, and uh, I, I want to thank you uh, for the time and ITAM for the time uh, and this discussion, which uh, I know I have very much enjoyed with my colleagues. I think the takeaway here is know the rules of engagement, know what you're involved in. No one sits down behind uh, a chessboard and tries to play the game without knowing the rules. And uh, the rules of engagement with the audit, as we've tried to underscore, um, generally people know what's up because something formal has been invoked, uh, but still take the time to understand um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the rules there, as Joel pointed out earlier, which relate to the reasonableness of the audit. You, you want to know what you're involved in. Uh, the so-called uh, soft audit, which maybe from this point forward will be known as the stealth or submarine audit. Um, uh, you, you have to know and understand and appreciate the perils when you are disgorging information upon the request of a vendor. Uh, Joel's point earlier that you don't owe them anything in that situation is incredibly important. And that doesn't mean you disappear, uh, but it does uh, mean that you need to know your leverage point. And if you're not obliged legally to give some, some information, some data to the vendor, then they better have a pretty good reason to be asking for it. And you probably should have a pretty good reason to impart it to them, or for that matter, even set forth conditions for the transmittal of the information. But you have to know what you're involved in. And I'll just put the headline on, know the rules of engagement. I like that. That's a, that's a good good takeaway for sure. I like the, the chess analogy of, you know, you understand the rules before you start playing. I think that's, um, that's good advice for all walks of life, I think. Um, you know, maybe we, we can branch out from talking about uh, software and just talk about you know, life in, in general on the next one. Um, so next up is Dean. All right. Well, uh, thank you to everyone for listening. I agree with everything Art said. Um, I think my takeaway would just be, this is complex and dynamic. 
Um, and and I agree with what Art said that it, you have to know the rules of the game you're playing. But I started as a DBA. I know day-to-day DBA tasks, and it does not involve all of this stuff. So I think my takeaway from this would be that this is complicated. And because of the dollar figures that can be involved, because of the pitfalls that can be involved, I would say it needs to be treated with with a, a lot of seriousness in there. And that could be a dedicated internal team for the customer. It could be external experts um, to help with that. But just understand that this is a shifting environment. Um, we do this all the time, and it's it's difficult for us to keep on top of it. Uh, and so I think if you're trying to do this in addition to another job as kind of like your side gig, that's a great way to, to run into problems. And so uh, treat this with the, the care it requires, the seriousness it requires, um, and, and go from there. Great advice, as always. I think you, you, you're right. You know, I find it with, with Microsoft that, you know, it keeps me busy just tracking all the updates and the changes. And, and if I had, as you've seen, an actual, another job to do primarily, there's no chance. And, and, and maybe, yeah, you know, easier said than done. But as you say, you know, a internal resource or budget to to pay a third party to you know to, to bring you up to speed quarterly or annually i think would be money well spent for for any organization yep. um, so thank you very much um joel what, what's your your key takeaway well again i agree with what everybody has said about being careful being vigilant and everything but i just want to drill down on um just a a data point that kind of borrows on what you were talking about earlier rich that i think does bring all of this home you had mentioned of course that quest and uh, microfocus are are, uh, most recently that uh, that open text has purchased and are entering the fray and having the aggressive auditor on top of aggressive auditor Uh, if you just look at the numbers when Microfocused originally sold back in 2014, it was for 1.2 billion. They then entered their aggressive process of auditing and they just sold to open text for 6 billion. Quest sold to uh, Francisco Partners and some other venture capital groups in 2016 for 2 billion, tripled that when they sold to Clear Lake for 6 billion in 2021. So let's just say that aggressive auditing and making everybody hate you and becoming the prize of the business is good business. And it is causing these companies to have extraordinary uh, gains when they get sold again on the market. So my takeaway would be past is prologue, it's working. Uh, just don't be a victim to it as it spreads across the country and spreads across this industry. That's very interesting. Those numbers, because I think, you know, people, when we talk to people about aggressive auditors, you know, everyone kind of looks at it from a uh, an individual perspective or a, a human perspective and, and they kind of think, oh, you know, surely they, they can't carry on being this aggressive. You know, no one likes them. And, and that's, you know, that's sad. But you know, as you've shown there, if you can if you can triple yourself up to six billion, you know anyone who's watched any Netflix program about venture capitalists <laughs> understands that tripling your money is way more important than anyone liking you. Um, so that that's interesting for people to understand. You know the the frame of reference. It's not about whether everyone hates them or not. It's are, are they now worth four billion more than they were. A couple of years ago so, so yeah some, some great great numbers there um and then you you've got the perhaps the hardest job of all now mike you you're alphabetically last so you have to try and think of something that no one else has said um but yeah over over to you to, to wrap us up yeah i guess i would go back to basics get your house in order just as you would get an annual financial audit, at least once have a vendor like a licensed fortress come in and determine if you're in software compliance. I can tell you after a decade of doing these, we've yet to find a company that we could say was 100% compliant because then when you know what the issues are, it's easy to correct them. So when the vendor does audit you, it's not a problem. And then long-term come up with a strategy. It really bothered me when 69% of the survey respondents said, They don't have any way of monitoring and keeping their environment in compliance. 
that's just putting your head in the sand and making yourself an easy target for the vendors. So like I would say, just get your house in order so you have time to deal with it so that it's not a problem during the next audit. Completely agree. And I think, you know, that that last point probably speaks to the, you know, the need for IT asset management to be more prevalent and more resourced within organizations. You know, we still see a surprising number of organizations that are surprisingly large, which have little or no asset management capability internally. And, you know, the ITAM review, we, we kind of talk about, you know, you wouldn't have a business without a finance department, without a security team. Why would you have a business without, uh, a, you know, an IT asset management department or software licensing management? And um, so I completely agree with you with you there, Mike, that it, it's, you know, fun, as long as there are software vendors, there will be software audits. So being able to protect yourself is you know, fundamental to, to good business, I would say. Um, so on that note, uh, I want to say thank you, as always, to, to all four of you. This has been uh, a, a wonderful discussion. I very much enjoyed it. I think we've covered a lot of great topics which will you know hopefully spark uh, you know actions and thoughts and uh, improvements for all the listeners so so yes yeah, so thank you all for your time it's been really really appreciated thank you thank you thank you and then um, thank you to everyone listening um to, to this podcast any questions feel free to get in touch with us at item review connect with with the speakers directly on on linkedin um you know and, and get in touch that way but yeah i hope this has been useful and i will see you all on the next podcast thank you very much